Hey everyone, this is Brian Pelletier, and welcome to Extraordinary, the Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Hey, hey, Extraordinaires. In this episode, I speak with Christy Covell, Director of Public Policy and Interim Executive Director at the Connecticut Alzheimer's Association. In this conversation, we discuss the different components of advocacy and the value of being involved. Without further ado, please enjoy. Well, first, Christy, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. It's always great to talk to you. I know it's every now and then, every few months or so, or six months, we kind of run into each other or talk. So it's great to have this conversation. Yeah, it's absolutely great to be here. Thank you. So a typical place where I'll start off is a quick introduction. And if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing now, that would be a good place to start. Absolutely. So my name's Christy Koval, and I am the Director of Public Policy at the Alzheimer's Association Connecticut chapter. And in this role, I oversee all of the federal and state policy priorities for the organization for the state of Connecticut, as well as um, oversee the grassroots act, uh, activities that we do um, with advocates. And also I'm the lead person uh, for government affairs um, with legislators, both on a state and federal level. And if you kind of look back for over the last 15 or so years, you know, we were at Hebrew Home together back in the day, and and you were at Alzheimer's Association for a little bit prior to going to the state. And so I was curious, what kind of brought you back to the Alzheimer's Association? So I was at the Alzheimer's Association. I, I did policy uh, my, when I first joined back in 2008, and then I, I moved into the communications role. I then went to the state for three years. I worked for the state legislature um, on aging issues, both in the policy side and communications. And this opportunity came up for me about a year ago to spearhead the policy initiatives uh, in Connecticut. And really, organizationally, we've put a lot of resources into policy. So, and this has been reflective of, there's been quadrupling of federal research dollars at NIH as a result of our advocates. This is nationwide. And we just passed some landmark legislation called the BOLD Act, um, which is a real game changer in terms of care and support um, structure. And then, you know, on a state level, we have a state plan here um, that was passed and done in 2013, but it's time to update that. And so I, I saw it as a really good opportunity to come back and and work with the folks around the state on, on Alzheimer's policy issues. And so there seems to be, at least from, from my perspective, I guess a twofold piece. So, so there's nonprofits that have their own challenges, and then there's nonprofits and advocacy groups that I think brings its own challenges. And I was curious a little bit to hear what some of the challenges are from an advocacy standpoint that you've seen in the last year for sure, but even beyond that. So I think some of the challenges that I have seen in terms of advocacy, it's, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities, you know, in terms of we've seen a real increase in terms of people who are engaged in our cause. A lot more people are affected. So we definitely are seeing sort of family systems, younger people, caregivers, especially millennials are really, you know, starting to get involved because they're affected in, in the family. You know, I think 
the challenges, you know, people still think of advocacy and or policy and they, they sort of glaze over a little, you know, so people, you know, they get a little bit gun shy about wanting to get involved in that sort of thing or that that's complicated or I don't know a lot about that. So, you know, you still have to work with people and tell them, you know, your voice matters. Even if you are sending an email, it's all about relationships. So my job is sort of working with people in the community and sort of saying, you know, we're a government of the people and, and your voice does matter. So that's kind of where I see my role being effective. And, and if you think back, even prior to some of your work at advocacy, did you happen to notice if there was a trend in what you were interested in towards either older adults or in advocacy specifically? So, you know, when, when I was at Hebrew Healthcare, I really, I was, you know, I had the opportunity and I was grateful for it to get involved with Leading Age, which is a, a national advocacy organization that, that has work, they do work in Connecticut. And there I was working with healthcare providers on, you know, quality of care issues and rates, Medicaid rates and things like that. And I, I feel like that sort of opened the door for me to sort of work on these kinds of things. Um, and, and the advocacy space has definitely shifted. It's grown. It has become very, very grassroots, but you still need sort of those industry groups kind of leading the way in terms of, you know, opening doors and building those relationships. Good. So I guess if we shift over a little bit to the leadership side of it, and if you think about what you have been doing on the policy side, what are some of the leadership skills that you need to have? I think in terms of being a leader in, in policy, I think you have to be very, very comfortable with being able to train people to have effective messaging with, with people in, with government folks, you know, with either legislators or the policymakers and the staffers and to sort of be comfortable that you're not the, you can't do all of it that the, the constituents' voices matter the most. And I think, you know, we hear that from legislators all the time. They want to hear from the people that elected them. So I think that that having that leadership skill to be able to train it's and kind of delegate and be able to walk away and, and let the people who are affected, in our case, by Alzheimer's disease, you know, be able to deliver that message. I think you really have to be comfortable because it's not you all of the time. You're sort of the bridge. So I think you have to be a strong leader, but I also think you have to be able to delegate and be okay with that and understand that that their personal story is going to is going to have the impact. So I think there's two pieces in that that would be interesting to dig deeper into. So one is a clarity of the message. And so it sounds like the best way to impact change is to make sure that the message is clear and that we're or at least the association has a unified front for what they're trying to change. And then the second piece, it sounds like there's the story or the emotional side behind it that helps to connect with those legislators for them to understand what those constituents are challenged with. Absolutely, it is. It's, it's all about messaging, the stories, and then the relationships. You know, there's, you know, I have wonderful relationships with many, many state legislators, but you know, the constituents are the ones who are impacted. And if, and if they reach out and have that relationship, and that's how I always start any type of training or presentation with potential advocates is that if you have that relationship, this is a very easy thing to do. So I guess for me, being a little bit green or inexperienced with sort of how that legislative process works, could you give me a little bit of background on the the BOLD Act or, or something where you're you're trying to 
moves a piece of legislation forward and how that process would work? Absolutely. So like, let's say on the federal research piece, um, working to get increases in NIH, we will have you know, a bill introduced in Congress, and then we will mobilize advocates to reach out to their members of Congress on why this is a good idea, why they were personally impacted, how costly Alzheimer's is, and then we will back it up with how costly Alzheimer's is in general and the trajectory of the disease in terms of how many people are gonna be impacted. And recognizing that this is an ongoing battle, whether or not it's for increased research funding or even legislation on the state level, training, that kind of thing, that, that when you introduce legislation, oftentimes it's introduced because it's looking at something that can be better, like it might be a problem or, and, and that needs addressing. But it does oftentimes take more than one year to pass legislation. So the BOLD Act, for example, that, that, was, that has been, they've been trying to work on that for years. And just things like training or anything else, things take multiple years. You know, it's, it's kind of a long game. It's not like you can introduce a bill and know that it's going to pass right away. It might take some time. You might have some people that are not in favor of it. You might not get the support. Something else might bubble up, you know, that has nothing to do with your issue that might take top priority. It might cost too much money. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen when you, when you push to have a bill introduced. So you have to be sort of prepared to, as a leader, be flexible and kind of change your strategy midway through and compromise. <laughs> yes, compromise sounds like a yeah. big component of it too. If we tie a little bit back into people suffering from Alzheimer's, you kind of mentioned a little bit about caregivers and having some support structures for them. And could you talk a little bit more about one of the challenges is the disease itself, but also the impact that it has on families and caregivers? Absolutely. Typically, somebody who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, they can live anywhere between two and 20 years. And you know, this is a very complicated disease because it doesn't impact, you know, it impacts somebody very, very differently, each person. So in terms of people's care needs, you know, there are, there are challenges with driving, there's challenges with wandering. 60% of those who have Alzheimer's disease may wander at some point, so there's safety issues, personal care needs. So, and it also, you know, there's a whole host of things. So when you look at how long someone can potentially live with this disease. And because it's progressive in nature, you know, it, it costs a lot of money because it's, it's not like there's a, a treatment, an effective treatment to slow the progression down of the disease. So oftentimes families are very, very challenged because as the person progresses with the disease and they need more care, the levels of care become more expensive, you know, whether it's, it, it might be going from a companion to actually a home health aid to maybe an adult day center to perhaps um, something more residential. So, you know, it depends on the trajectory, but that's the biggest challenge is, I think, the financial. I mean, the emotional, certainly, they're, they're sort of the same, but in terms of the cost is, is a real big struggle for many of our caregivers. I think if we talk a little bit more about the emotional side of it too, clearly, like you're saying, there's a financial burden, uh, depending on the longevity of that particular disease process for that person, but the the wandering and sort of the always on component that some of the caregivers have to go through, it seems like you know, they're either up all night with people or they have a little bit more challenge with 
caring for themselves because a lot of their time is caring for their loved one. It's true. And the emotional component, you know, a lot of our caregivers, you know, they, they struggle with exhaustion, the emotional component. And if you think about it, if you are caring for a spouse or your care part, you know, your, your loved one, and then they don't recognize you, you know, you can't, for me to say that it's like, it's, it's devastating. Or, you know, if, if children, adult children don't, you know, their parents don't recognize them or they don't recognize their own grandchildren. I mean, these are the sort of things that, that as the disease progresses, it's very, very hard to see. So because you typically have heard this described as the long goodbye, you know, that, that, that component is, is very, very hard for our, our caregivers and the, and the families that are affected. And what types of programs or assistance would the Alzheimer's Association or similar group have for caregivers? So the Alzheimer's Association, so we are uh, the largest voluntary health organization that supports people with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. And, you know, we are part of a, a network of chapters around the country. And, and, you know, so our programs and services include information and referral for people, you know, around the disease and or referrals um, for care, education and training. We provide free educational, community educational programs all around the state. We have a 24-hour helpline um, that people can call, and it could be as simple as a question, you know, I, I'm not sure if this medication is right to, I'm concerned about my dad, you know, he, he's having some difficulty. It can be any question. It's in multi-languages, many languages. We run a number, uh, more than 100 support groups around the state for people that are impacted with Alzheimer's disease, and, and these are trained facilitators, and we also run groups um, for people in the early stages of the disease. So a lot of times people will come with their care partner and it's good for folks to connect and share that experience. So those are the types of things. And then there's a whole component to our online curriculum. And even in the number of years that I've been working with the association, you know, the way people access information now about diagnosis and treatment has really shifted. And so we do have a number of courses if people can't get out, if they're, if they're caregiving themselves, where people can find information, they can download educational resources and access that through our website, which is alz.org. That's definitely a great resource. And if I could step back a little bit, uh, you had mentioned the Leadership Academy a little bit earlier, and you know, it seems like that year with the Leadership Academy and Leading Age helped to either change your path or kind of shift what direction that you were going. It absolutely did. And, and you know, it, it was interesting because I started in the Leadership Academy having been in residential, you know, care um, my whole career. And I think going through the process of, you know, being in that academy and, and learning a lot about leadership, I realized that I needed to challenge myself and to go to a community-based organization. And, and that was that was a really interesting shift for me. I hadn't done that before. I'd always been in a setting where we were taking care of people, you know, in-house. And this is a very different sort of a situation where we're interacting with members of the community, but we're not taking care of anyone inside of a building. So, um, but there's a lot of opportunity for us to work with people in different phases of, of where they are in, in the process of, of Alzheimer's. And for the, the leadership component, again, what were some of the strengths that you might have learned about yourself then and our strengths that you continue to work on? So some of the things I thought when I went through the Leadership Academy, I kind of thought 
that a career path and the, the skills you're learning in leadership that you were on like a pretty continual sort of career path that the two things sort of matched up. And I've kind of realized along the way that based on changes in the world and changes in healthcare and, you know, dynamics that you, you kind of change your leadership style as you become, you know, more experienced. So, you know, for me, it's been very interesting because I went into this organization, then I went to work for into state government, which was very, very different. And so I, while my leadership skills overseeing a staff was, was not utilized, I, I had a whole different level of interaction with the general public and with policymakers. And then now coming back to here, I have sort of both. So it, it's just, it's a, it's a shifting dynamic and particularly around workforce and sort of the, the real diverse workforce that we have now. You know, you have people that are getting out of college and they want certain experiences, but longevity might not be a part of that equation. And then you have people who are looking for a different type of work experience, but they are very, very experienced. And their skill set might not be exactly what you're looking for, but they have a different component in terms of relationship. And, and it, so you have to sort of be able to see all of that and use skill, any skill that people bring to the table. And so it seems like you, you've kind of seen at the, the state level what goes into the whole policy component pieces, all the, the different legislation and how it gets moved through. And then you've also seen from the residential side, what is happening in, in those facilities, as well as learning from the community. And so it seems like all of those components compound on each other and have added up to give you a broader perspective for what you're doing right now. It, it's true. I, when I left the association to go to state government, I didn't think I was coming back here, but you know, your path is your path. And this was a good opportunity for me uh, to take the skills I learned at the legislature and, and, you know, utilize them in this, in this role that I currently have. So, you know, I think that's, that's another thing, you know, you just don't know what doors can open as you're develop, strengthening and growing as a leader. And, and you might be developing skills that could be useful in a completely different setting. So I think you have to be open to that. That is wise advice. And there's typically a few rapid fire questions that, that I ask people towards the end or that I'm adding into it. So I was going to try those out here. Okay. So first is, uh, what are your thoughts on multitasking? I think it's effective if you're focused and you're, you're not trying to do it in certain situations. So for an example, if you can passively listen to an informational conference call on, on a topic and you're scrolling through your emails just to weed out or organize, I think that's okay for, for me. But I think with the amount of stimulation that we have with technology, I think the ability to focus and be present on what you're doing is, is absolutely critical. So I try not to use my phone during meetings or things like that. I, I just, you know, I, I think there's a time and place for that. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that, that same thought process and the, the whole idea of, of focus time and really spending all of your mental energy on one thing at that one particular time seems to make us a little bit more productive overall. It does. It does. It's always a work in progress though, as you probably right. know. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. All right. So the second question is when you think of someone that has great leadership skills who would that person be? And what's the type of skill that comes to 
to the top of your mind? A specific person or just the type of the type of skills? Either one. So I've been really fortunate um, both here and um, at the legislature to have very good supervisors. And I think the key was uh, their ability to map out a vision and allow me to sort of execute it. And I, I think that is a really good strength. I've actually, the last few people I've worked at are just, they're much more visionary and I feel like I'm a really good execution person. Like I can execute a bunch of things. And I think to realize that they don't, they didn't need to know what the process was. And I think that's a real skill. So for me, I value that in a leader, somebody who has really good vision, but they understand what their strengths are. So they don't, they don't need to get into the weeds. And that was the direction I was going to take is that it seems like that person in addition to the vision also has the self-awareness to know that, okay, Christy is really good at executing this and I'm not. And so here's what I'm looking for, but being able to, to create this joint plan of how to tackle that particular situation, you know, they, they seem to be better capable of doing that by working to the strengths of everyone. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that's the key to a really effective leader is to really, you know, you, you've heard this before, but it's really true. You have to surround yourself with people that can compliment you and, and help you and do the things that you can't or don't have time to do. Completely agree with that too. Yes. And so the last thing, sort of a, a broader question is kind of opening it back up to you to find out, is there anything either specific to advocacy in the work that you do or something broader from a leadership perspective that you want to share with the listeners before we ended? I think that if people realize that your leadership style will continue to grow and change as you grow and change and you age, as we're all aging, that's one thing. And I think the advocacy takeaway is that people should feel comfortable with that process in terms of paying attention and staying engaged and not being afraid to speak up or show up. And I think we've seen this with some recent elections. You know, we are in a democracy. We're lucky to live in one. And I think, I think it requires that people remain engaged and, and pay attention, you know, um, and get involved in the things that really that they want to get involved with, whether or not it's something local in their town or something on a more national level. And, and I think that's an amazing place to, to wind down and to end the conversation so people show up and be generous with, with your time. So Christy, I really thank you for being on the podcast. It's always great to talk to you and I wish you the best of luck in the new year. Thank you so much for having me on today. It was great talking to you. That concludes our show. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for being extraordinary.